Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And um, in a minute, I'll introduce my friend Robin Harford, with whom I'm having a conversation this week. Uh, actually, the podcast uh, conversation was recorded a couple of weeks back. We've, uh, we've been trying to get ahead so we don't have these kind of gaps in the output. But um, first of all, I want to, I don't know, just speak from this moment, really. Um, here we are a couple of days into the lockdown in, uh, in the UK. And um, as I said last week, it seems that um, we're being sort of gathered back in to the places where we live. And uh, whilst it's very worrying in terms of, you know, the health situation that so many people are vulnerable and also the economic situation, it's difficult to see uh, how the world can be the same when we come out the other side of this. It's, uh, it's surely going to be very different. But nevertheless, there's, there's sort of very drastic immediate changes for the better, which, which are happening even as I speak. Yesterday, I was looking at maps published in the Guardian newspaper of the uh, change in the levels of pollution in the air over England and over, sorry, over the British Isles, Great Britain and Ireland, and, and uh, also over China. Compared to a time last year in 2019, these maps of pollution show a drastically reduced level of air pollution as a result of people not flying in airplanes, not driving in cars, and presumably because of uh, industry shutting down. And um, uh, there's talk in, in, in China of birds coming back to one of the towns there. Um, and at first, people weren't sure why that was happening, birds that hadn't been seen for years. And it's, it turns out it's because the um, air pollution is uh, has dissipated and, and the, 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 these birds will only be there where, where there's clean air. And it just seems as if the fact that we've, sort of had to shut down our usual sort of scurrying around all over the place is making an immediate effect on the Earth's atmosphere, the, the quality of the air, and seeing wild species able to move back into spaces. So, yeah, I mean, I was actually talking to Robin this morning um, about the uh, experience of being out in the wild, and Robin was saying, well, you know, the birds are singing and Everyone's going on as if this wasn't happening. And yet here's, here's a sense, um, and that is certainly true. I felt the same thing as I've been out in the woods this week. But, but nevertheless, here's this sense in which, you know, the, the uh, wild species are finding this a better place to live just after a, a very short period of us reducing our activities in terms of travel. You know, there's there's a, there's an old adage that, that came out from the, you know, a lot of uh, hippie thinkers in the 60s. There was a, there was a book um, by this name called "Be Here Now," and that's a that's a that's a great thought that we should be present and in in the moment. But I suppose the the uh, command that we're getting from the government at the moment and the absolute necessity to stop this coronavirus spreading um, is that we have to not, not just be here but stay here and become kind of anchored in the spot. It's it's a very unique situation to find ourselves in, and. Uh, I know I'm kind of repeating myself from from what I said last week. If 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 uh, if, if you've listened to that, but um, it's a time for us to really put our roots down. You know where we are. If you're at home with other people, it's an opportunity to really put your roots down. In um, terms of you know your close proximity physically gives an opportunity to to uh, really meet with and be with. I'm sure there's um, aspects of us driving each other nuts because we're all stuck indoors in the same place. But uh, nevertheless, it's an opportunity for us to to find that that uh, resolution of the things uh, that maybe keep us apart and and um, find ourselves more embedded in the relationships with with uh, family that we live with. So on top of that, obviously, there's the opportunity to to get more embedded in um, 
the edible wild plants. And, you know, I've started, I've just today put my first um, short video on Instagram. It's something I'm going to um, be trying to do every day and just thinking about how I can um, just get word out to people in my vicinity because uh, obviously everybody's at home and, and has the opportunity to do that. So, for example, I've just joined a local Facebook group. It's never occurred to me to do that before. It just seems like such an opportunity for everyone to just stop and um, look around, you know, see see where you are, see see who else is there, you know, who who are your neighbors in terms of, you know, the other human beings that you live close to. It's funny, I, I once said that edible wild plants are like the people on your street that you've, you've uh, never met, you know, that you live near. And, you know, we're separated by these walls. Uh, well, I mean, I'm imagining you're living in a terraced house, as probably some of you are and many of you aren't. But, you know, there's just walls between us separate separating us from other lives who in the past, you know, anyone living close to you would have been, really would have been kin in some sense, whether actually blood relatives or, or part of the same tribe and so on. But, you know, what if this lockdown carries on for months? And what if, what if we discover that, that the, uh, the, the needs that we all are trying to satisfy uh, by things far, far away and by going far, far away are actually right in front of us. And I feel sure that the, the, the truth is that they are, you know, and it's such a mistake that we keep running away and going elsewhere, being elsewhere, um, not being being present. And, and, and like present means that we, we, uh, we get to meet the neighbors on our street and get to meet the plants um, that are right near us. So my, my little comparison there is perhaps this is an opportunity to, to see uh, where we are and, and who's near. Um, and, you know, to take some of those plants that are, are nearby and, and make them, you know, it, it always, it's always kind of funny to give these little intros and, and do the podcast at all, in fact, knowing that there's so many different people hearing and you don't know who they are or where they are, whatever. But, you know, if you, if you know wild plants already, um, it's an opportunity to, to get to know them better and, 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 and maybe even think about how you could start something that would that would communicate with your neighbors like so all these whatsapp groups now and facebook groups there's um there's this thing called next door which i managed to join for for the village the other side of us but uh anyway yeah it just it just seems like there's there is such an opportunity here um and and you can probably hear from the tone of my voice i'm i'm feeling as i'm sure everybody is quite unnerved by this you know it's it's it is really unprecedented times we don't know what's going to happen i'm sitting here in in our work unit we're having had to send everybody home um you know because you know our restaurant supply thing is 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 obviously non-existent just now um it is the, the strangeness of it all that, that, that we feel but at the the same time um there is a sense that that somehow or another there there could be um a purpose working through this that's going to give us an opportunity to create a new beginning you know because we look at we look at everything happening as i think i mentioned last week and think how on earth could we get the response that's necessary to stop climate change to reverse the habitat and species destruction and and the and the um desperate kind of contagion of, of, of social issues, you know, of, of, of loneliness, of mental health difficulties, of, of the, the dissolving of, of any kind of bonds of community. You know, what could we do to stop this? You know, and, and, and as desperate as the situation is with, uh, you know, especially elderly and sick people being very vulnerable to this virus, that the, uh, the fact of this lockdown um, could mean a new beginning because people are putting their roots down in the ground. Okay, so that's um yeah, kind of a different tone to usual. Um I guess 
very, very interesting and different times. But um, so now we'll get on to the podcast with Robin Harford, who I'm, I'm sure for many listening will need no introduction at all. Robin does the, uh, the Eat Weeds website podcast. He's got a, um, a mailing list that reaches a lot of people and has put a lot of information out. Um, and as you'll hear him talking in, in the um, course of this conversation, he really does focus in on, on the use of the senses. And um, that's something that has become increasingly uh, relevant to me or, or, or just come into much sharper focus in, in recent times. And also there's something that Robin doesn't talk about in his podcast, I hope we'll talk about it another time, uh, is he does spend quite a lot of time uh, with communities in remote rural areas in different parts of the world, uh, exploring their uh, traditions of wild plant use, and so you know, there's a there's a depth that he brings back to engaging in in the uh, in the UK flora based on having seen these these much more uh, rooted traditions. Well, these traditions that have much deeper roots, perhaps than what we're able to um, live in and experience here. Okay, well, let's get on with the conversation with Robin Harford. Very nice. That's my living. That's my uh, view out of my living room. Fantastic. Yeah. What's that lake then? That's a river. It's a river X. Okay. So it's, um, yeah, I just sit and, and learn from the river. I actually learn from a heron who I've nicknamed Frank after Frank Cook because he's tall and gangly. And um, he's an interesting bird to watch and see how he operates in the ecosystem. Yeah, go on. Okay. Um, say that. So yeah, well, it's about observe, it's about observing the ecosystem and learning from it, isn't it? Really, that's what it is for me, anyway. Same with plants. Same with any any aspect of the ecosystem. I suppose we can learn from humans, but I don't have that much confidence in our wisdom. <laughs> if planet Earth is anything to go by at this particular state um, or place and time, so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very contemplative house that I have. I can just sit and, and stare. And the beauty is that even though I'm in the city, I'm right on the edge of the city. And I have, um, yeah, I have that luxury. And it is a luxury. So what city are you on the edge of? Uh, I'm on the edge of Exeter, which is down in Devon. But you're not where you were when I visited you all those years ago? You're not. No, that's about 15 miles away Um just in the countryside, just outside Sidmouth. So always near the coast for me, always near water, definitely. Um, I was in Oxford yesterday and I was beginning to rattle because it's a bit inland and it's a bit flat. And I, yeah, they have ri rivers and stuff, but it's not quite like the ocean. So, yeah. So are you going to tell me what you learned from Frank or not? What did I learn from Frank? Okay, so when I was 10 years old, I was at school. And I had this extraordinary English teacher and the teachers in assembly each morning um, would read something. Now, most of it was like really utterly boring, but this particular gent, and he was a gent, um, spent a week every morning reading all of us at school, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Yeah. And... To this day, that book has, has stuck with me. It obviously made a massive impression. And he was a, he'd been a Spitfire fighter pilot during the war. And he had a, a depth of understanding and compassion and empathy 
um, from those experiences that he tried to instill in us the celebration of our own individuality and our own uniqueness. And Jonathan Livingston Seagull is a metaphor exploring exactly that. It's about a seagull. If you, uh, if you know birds, seagulls are flocks. Yeah, they like hanging out together. They're very herd-like or flock-like. And you don't really see individual or individualism being expressed in them. I'm sure you do. I'm sure some birdie people will pick me up on that. But the point of it is, is that Jonathan, this kind of wayward seagull, this outlier in the community, a kind of outcast, really. He was always odd and different, just did his own thing. And it is a, it's a deeply spiritual book because he has this presence, this very elder seagull that turns up later on in the story to guide him. And it's about pushing through all your limitations and pushing through your discomfort and and, and forging your own path, not in a belligerent way, absolutely not in a belligerent way, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a very soulful way, doing your own thing, irrespective of what the group, the collective or the herd says. Now, that's actually a really politically incorrect thing to say in this current climate, because you know, individualism is seen as the bane of planet Earth. It's, you know, this is why we are where we are in this situation. But it's an individualism and a self-interest that is in harmony with the rest of the world because, obviously, from a purely self-interested perspective, if we don't look after ourselves, we can't help anybody else. So it's a story that's, that's very powerful. And actually, I've, I've just joined a story skills workshop. And when you signed up, it was what one book has influenced you the most in your life. And it was just Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And I was told that when I was 10 years old. I'm 56 now. So I like the power of the reason I'm doing this, the storytelling workshop is I like the power of stories mm. to communicate concepts, principles and ideas in a way that makes them accessible to most people. I won't say everybody because there is that's kind of mass marketing, but certainly we can we can we can tell stories about different aspects of the natural world in a way that um, speaks to the hearts of people rather than just their heads. So, yeah, what has Frank taught me? Don't be afraid to follow your own your own thing, whatever it is, even if it goes against the status quo and it challenges certain people's worldviews, which it will if you're true to yourself it's not about pleasing people it's about being authentic to self um and so that i mean that all feeds into foraging and teaching the facts and figures of plants and how do we communicate the the deep knowledge that our ancestors our grandparents our great-grandparents used to have and their understanding of, of the ecosystem how do we communicate that in a way that is engaging, emotional, without being drippy, um, and in a way that inflames people so they come alive and it sparks curiosity and, um, yeah, curiosity. And childlike wonder, I like that word, childlike wonder. So we go into the ecosystem and through engaging with plants, we... We touch on mystery and awe and bliss and beauty, all the good groovy things that 
former hippies like. <laughs> so is it the fact that, so I'm being a bit of a um, dog with a bone here, but I'm just thinking about you sitting there watching the, the herring. So is it is it is it because he's fishing on his own? Is it that kind of solitary? Um, yeah, it's 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 watching how he works and 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 operates within this very small bioregion of the river here, and how he deals and interacts with other birds coming into his patch, so to speak. And I think it's, I just like his grace and his stillness and his calm and his, his eyes when I look at them through my binoculars, that they are, they are one-pointed. You know, he is alert because he wants to feed and he is very, very patient. And he sits and watches He's this the man, this guy's presence, our patience is like extraordinary. He can stand for hours, just patient, quiet observation, and then boom, then he's in. Yeah, yeah. And then he'll just get up and I mean they're huge. If you've ever seen a heron up close when it flies by you, their wingspan is pretty big. Yeah. And he just bobs. You know, he just takes it easy and slow. But He's on it when he needs to get what he wants. Yeah. So I like him, and I like the fact that he's a solitary. I've always had a, a thing for kind of contemplatives that are, are, are solitary and and um, loners, I suppose. Uh, but they're not lonely because something else is going on that that's enriching their life that most people can't quite get because. A lot of people, you know, they, they feel very uncomfortable if they aren't around people and aren't continually talking and filling space. So, yeah. And the river, you know, the river's a brilliant teacher. Just, it's, it, this view is a living picture. I see the seasons through the trees, right through the shades, the change. So it's, con it's on a continuum all the time. It's ever-changing. There is nothing... Permanent, fixed, or static. It's continually doing something. There is a, a movement going on. I mean, I keep trying to think about this, um, and um, we're having a chat on the way back from Wales from the AOF meeting um, in the car and, and trying to, because um, I've had this sense for a while. I mean that's very interesting. You're you're talking about a uh, um, a point of view there, literally. I mean, you know, I, I'm sitting here looking at your point of view, which people listening to this conversation won't won't be in in that sense. But I'm I'm sitting there looking at you and your view, yeah. <laughs> seeing your view from sort of sort of from your point of view. I'm I'm almost at the same position as you are in the room looking out of that window at some of what you're looking at. I can't catch your whole view there. Yeah. But that's that's quite interesting. So you you have ah oh, thank you. That's that's a bit more. Uh, Robin's just moved the the, the uh, so I can still just about see you but I can see more of your point of view. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean I can't resist following through 
the little play on words that, that I do with that, which which is which is to say, oh, here's here's your point of view, and what is the point of view? Because I think I think plays on words often do open up something true, you know. So so there's something about your point of view which explains what is the point of view, what is the purpose of Robin. Um, but maybe we won't get into that because yeah, but but, yeah, but it's it, deep, man. <laughs> It's deep or ridiculous or, 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 or just anyway mildly amusing. I, yeah. I said that to my kids and they just want to kick me in the shins for yet another dad joke. That's how it comes across to them. But uh, I think there's probably something in it. Anyway, um, this thing about from your point of view, you're following the seasons. So literally from your static sitting there looking out at that. Uh, I And I think that's quite interesting, like the static point of view to, to observe exactly that from there and how it changes through the year. But I've been thinking more generally about our, our point of view as in our life, you know, that we pass through the land as we pass through the year and how it changes. And that um, I guess I came up with this question, which was, I don't think I understand what this is, um, as in me a living being or this particular living being and maybe a human um passing through the seasons over and over again i don't understand what this is or the other thing that i'm trying to say is i'm not sure i'm doing this right or i think i'm missing out a big piece of what this is supposed to be you know when i travel through the seasons and 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 in this chat on the way back from the from the thing in wales i felt like a little piece maybe fell in that that, that it's something about that there's something that's fitting to do with our participation in that which is missing you know and and and, and i think maybe it's the lack of um culture around that you know um and 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 the weird thing is, Robin, is I think that I agree about this sort of loner thing. Most of us um, who are making a big thing of, of foraging being our whole life, or at least we're managing to, to, to make it our livelihood as well as our hobby. So we're just thinking about this stuff all the time and maybe doing it more than, than people who have to do something else for a job all the time. Uh, we are a bunch of loners in in a sense, you know. We we are people that are much more comfortable with going out on our own and spending a lot of time in these wild spaces. Um, and yet, paradoxically, I think maybe the work that we're doing in the long run is that we're beginning to rekindle the the, the fire, as it were, of culture around this active participation, and and in the long run. We may have this thing that, that, you know, as I'm gliding through the seasons, I feel like there's a point of meeting with every part of what you're describing, you know, these changes that are happening. There's, there's something appropriate that we uh, that needs to draw something out from us. So, so there's the tree coming out with the leaves and the flowers and the seeds and the fruit and the whatever at these different times. But that uh, is supposed to be drawing something out from us, you know, like that, that we that we gather and uh, make a May garland or we gather and we make a soup or we gather and we dry a bunch of stuff for the winter, you know. But that's also us as a species, what the season is unfolding from us. 
And I think that's that's the thing that I feel like I'm missing. I feel like I'm hungry for that, and that it's I feel naked without it, sort of thing. And so, you know, I just think maybe that's that's what we're for. You know, what what what's the point of view? You know, um, I think maybe that's what we're for, Robin. Is that us kind of weird, lonely people that don't mind spending hours wandering around the forest with no one else to talk to? Maybe that's what we're for to start. That stuff for... Yeah, I don't. I don't know whether it's a. I don't think. I, for me, I'm very social to a point. I'm not brilliant in really large groups. I can teach in front of a group. I can talk to hundreds of people. That's not a problem. Um, I cert, I definitely have a have a a limit on the size where I'm completely comfortable, and then I move into discomfort. Um, and that depends on the dynamics of the people involved and what that particular gathering is about. So for me, it's not one or t'other. I think it's both and. I kind of get what you're saying about, you know, we go off on our own. But I'm interested in the – and you, you use the word. I remember we spoke – most probably two years ago and been off in the forest in Thailand and I'd come back and while I was um, actually going going there, I stopped off in, um, I think it was Dubai. Anyway, it was a Middle Eastern country and I was surrounded by this Muslim family and they were very devout. I mean, it was a long wait. It was 14 hours because the plane had been grounded due to mist first time in like decades that they'd had mist and um or fog rather and the people sat down and the women kept themselves to themselves obviously because they were they were um from my understanding orthodox quite orthodox so the women wouldn't talk to me but the 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 men did and what happened was food came out and food was shared in a very hot open and wholehearted way and and i just really felt that that was missing from our culture, from the, the, the English culture, obviously, um, or the English Judeo-Christian culture, to be specific. Um, certainly in my, my uh, upbringing and my world, that, that really is lacking. And you used um, a word, yes, but they have kinship. And I... That word's really stuck with me, and I love that word kinship. And I don't like referring to, oh, I go foraging, because I prefer the word gather, because there's more um, nuances to how you can take that word. You can take that word as I'm going gathering food or medicine or whatever you're gathering, you know, plants for dyes or plants for clothing or whatever, whatever the the ethnobotanical use is that you're gathering a wild plant for. Harvesting to me is a, is a farming word. You know, you sow the seeds, you, the plants grow up and you harvest them. But gather is, it has nuances. So there's gathering of food, there's gathering together. Yeah. Which is really important. And when we gather together in a nourishing way, not in an adversarial way, and so gather to me comes from hunter-gatherer, hunter-gatherer. And that takes me in my thinking 
back to no magic hunter gatherers. So that, look, often people will will jump will clump tribal hunter gatherers as in static people with turf and territory, um, fixed people in with nomadic hunter gatherers. And I think there needs to be a, a definite differentiation between the two. Um, James C. Scott, the anthropologist from, I think he's, is he Harvard? I don't know where he's, anyway, he's, he's a highfalutin anthropologist, has written a book called Against the Grain, uh, which for, looks at nomadic hunter-gatherer groups, the, the very few that are remaining and how they're stateless. And it looks at their social dynamic and how they work together and interact together. And there is deep kinship there. It's they're basically non-hierarchical, which is always quite cool being an old punk. Um, and gender roles are, are very different. And so gather, they gather. They gather together. They gather in with each other. They gather food together. Through that process, kinship naturally comes forth. And I think for me, the way that, you know, but I was thinking about this earlier today, you know, when I started Eat Weeds, blog it i made my first post in 2008 and i was just recording you know what i was gathering and what i was making with it it was like a personal diary it was never intended to become this kind of repository of of um hopefully helpful information to people about wild edible plants on the whole i'm kind of including well medicinal plants now but on the whole it's about wild food wild edible plants and and now I look at where I am in my own journey. So I, I came back to, to foraging. I had rekindled the interest in foraging in 2004, but I didn't start actually blogging until 2008. But the journey's been quite deep. I mean, yeah, I, don't, I don't think anyone can go into an ecosystem and hang out in it long enough without it changing us. And we, in turn, most probably change it or certainly have an influence on it. And so gather, you know, we talk about food. Well, I'm going to gather food. Well, what are you Are you gathering? When you say that, again, the nuances of words and the, and, the, and the levels of meaning of words. Yeah, at one level we're gathering food and we're feeding ourselves and being fed as a result. But how are we being fed? Where are we? You know, are we just literally fulfilling a physical need or is there something else going on in that gathering process and when we gather together we are fed far more deeply than when we do it on our own for me you know when i'm with a group of people and we're gathering together and it unfolds through the day and we come back and we break bread and sit in community and eat feeding takes on a whole nother meaning than just the physical, shove it in your mouth and get it in your gut, you know, seeing food as fuel, which the culture tends to do, instead of a more celebration or a ritual. I don't really like using that word. Um, Yeah, it has too many negative connotations for me. Um, Or weird and spooky. Yeah, yeah, and I don't do weird and spooky, so it's difficult to kind of clarify my thinking on this without sounding like a complete lunatic, because it's not spooky. That's what I've found is that 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 mystery and awe. I'm not talking in a in a necessarily necessarily, and I'm always open to things necessarily a metaphysical way. I'm just talking on a 
on a on a very how it impacts us as humans when we gather food in the ecosystem and when we gather together and what what is the long term consequences of that as our physical health improves because of the nutrient density of wild plants our emotional health improves because we start gleaning a, a deeper understanding of our relationship within the ecosystem and a mental an increase in our mental well-being because you know you stick a human in a cage unable to touch any other living thing and it's going to go nuts which is why isolation you know isolation in a prison and equate the two if humans are isolated in the culture by staying indoors and um you know that's really that that creates a sick society and so just the act and it's simple there's nothing complex about this it's like the very act of going outside being mindful when you gather a dandelion so you're really conscious that you're gathering the the finest the healthiest the freshest part of the dandelion plant not just gathering the plants i mean i've had people on my courses quite a lot when i've sent them off to gather and they've come back with stuff that you put in the compost bin it's like have you not can you not discern vibrant health in front of your very eyes where than they would in the supermarket they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't buy manky carrots from the supermarket no but and the chances are in the supermarket those manky carrots wouldn't get on the shelf so we're kind of we got this in botany there's this term plant blindness which means we basically don't see plants but you know you can go further with that and go well we actually don't we really don't see plants because we can't see the differentiation between a healthy part of a plant and a kind of pass by gather date part of the plant yep so it comes to back to observation and presence and it's like listening to someone you know have you ever been at a you know I, I met someone the other day in in um nothing to do with foraging it was a um, someone a business colleague and we were in a cafe and i was talking and i was very aware that they weren't paying attention even though the reason i was there was that they wanted my help <laughs> um and wanted to ask me loads of questions about publishing so completely different to foraging um but they were getting distracted it's like wow i know that myself i know how easy it is to be distracted so being present with someone to really listen to them and hear them um and feel into maybe their emotional state that they're in at that specific point i bring that into the ecosystem to listen and hear and feel what's the ecosystem telling me here i mean again not to sound spooky but but boots on the ground you know being present enough to be able to to sense the change in the air of the wind and the smell so you know rain's coming around the corner yeah rather than being unconscious and, oh crap it's raining now you know and knowing that it's going to be raining very shortly and therefore you can you can adjust your your behavior to either get completely drenched and not really care or to seek shelter so it's yeah i don't know where we're going with this but it's kind of just from from writing recipes to a very different way of engaging with the landscape yeah did in 
which is actually where I'm I'm trying to move my work to. I, I did a um, a recent kind of test, I suppose. Um, I I I've started putting out very very short audios, like literally five ten minute audios, um, because the purpose of the work is not to stay on your screen. The purpose of the work for me is to encourage people to actively engage with their landscape and their bioregion to really become intimate with it as you would become intimate with a friend. And I don't mean intimate in a sexual way. I mean intimate, you know, you're close. You um, you deeply understand each other and have that relationship with the, with the landscape around where people live. So I, I gave silly little exercises because my my number one the only reason i communicate through the digital environment with video audio podcasts books information which is very head centric is ultimately to get people off technology by using technology because it's one of my frustrations is I can, and I said in this first test, this little test audio, I said, you know, my frustration is I can post a picture of a beautiful wild plant and show how bloody clever I am or whatever, and I get, you know, loads of likes and shares and foot whatever and comments rather. But does doing that serve yeah, the people by encouraging them off their screens? No, it doesn't. That's my experience, and I you know, been doing digital communications for, for years. So the purpose of the audience is get off the bloody screen. Hear this podcast, get off the screen. Don't watch it on a computer, maybe chuck in some headphones, but go for a walk, get out, and preferably not with headphones because <laughs> you're cutting out so much data, you're missing most of the communication. For me, you know, so that's the work. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the the um, the work, as you put it, is is to is to foster this actual engagement because you've got got that to share, and then it's a terrible kind of travesty if what happens is is now everyone's kind of um, just a Robin fan <laughs> or a Miles fan or whoever else is is doing this kind of work. That people people what they take away from it is. What an interesting chap Robin is. Yeah. Whereas, whereas there isn't there isn't what you're trying to do is impart the, the 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 thing that you've discovered so that other people are having that that same thing. And I think that the idea the digital medium and so on, I've, I'm getting pretty clear now in my thinking about technology. Um, so I keep saying this: it's just that we 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 need to make sure that the net effects of whatever we're doing with the technology is an increase in, in overall connectivity yeah, rather yeah. than a decrease. So, you know, and that's, that's, this stuff is so um, potent that if we don't watch it, it does just take over. You know, it, it, it means that now you are just focused through this great big, uh, you know, pipe of everything being digital rather than the digital thing facilitating you making these many connections with lots of different things, you know. So, I mean, I'm just agreeing with you, really, that, that like, to try and um, change how this teaching is happening through a digital medium to, to make sure that, that it's demanding people to, to not get stuck in that trap, you know, like, 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's. It, I, I like what you said about becoming Robin fans or Miles fans because I got I did an interview with a friend, a storytelling friend, uh, end of last year, and I was quite ballsy and bullshy. Actually, I'm not normally quite so gruff, um, but I I'd had far too much coffee, I think, beforehand, <laughs> and 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 I was harking back to you know you and I are both old punks, and we've talked about this and and. Obviously, we're not back. We're not back there as as teenagers. But um, say, did, well, did, you, did you listen to the end of last week's podcast? Ed, new rose by the damned at the end of it. I didn't. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, go. But the the, the the number one primary kind of principle that I walked away from punk with was be your own authority. So this concept of of becoming a, a teacher. And I, I did say this, and I always put teacher in air quotes. You know, I don't see myself as a teacher. I'm a wanderer that knows a little bit about plants, and I like to share that with the world. But I've really, I've been struggling with like, oh, God, yeah, you know, people project onto us, um, anybody, you know, it doesn't have to be a foraging instructor or guide. And I've really been work, trying to work with um, how... How can we teach in a way that fosters empowerment of the people who are, um, have turned up to listen to us? Yeah. And like I said, I'm doing this story skills workshop, and, and it's a fascinating way that this particular person has figured out how to use online education. And, and one, it fosters the students to all share together their insights and there aren't teachers there are coaches and for me when anyone says oh you're a coach or coaching and my brain immediately flops into someone who's got no business experience coaching someone in business <laughs> but the point of coaching is it's quite i think the word is stoical in the, or or socratic in the sense it's it's not giving information so it's not spoon feeding people it's actually socratic it's asking questions we're not asking just any old question it's they're very insightful questions that the coach will ask the student so the student comes to their own understanding so that's where i'm moving as part of the reason i'm doing the audience is to is to try and kind of play with that to see how it engages people because the, the 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 number one thing of digital technology and it's designed for it is to keep us passive and not to make us interactive or active. Um, and so that's what I'm playing with. You know, when I teach on foraging walks and courses, and you know, I tell people, you're going to work. I can be a talking head because the culture, you know, people's expectations of going to a workshop or a, a lecture course is, is that you're going to be talked at. I'm not interested in talking at you. I'm interested in fostering um, and encouraging your own understanding of the subject that through asking the questions, you come up with your own answers. So it comes back to self-empowerment, self-trust, trusting your body's response to a specific plant, irrespective of what the group is saying or the collective is saying. What is your individual insight when you you know, you, you, you touch and you smell and you crush and you nibble a plant. What's your internal response? How do you think you will, you could work with it in, in a kitchen or artistically or 
however the inspiration comes. And thereby, you don't need me. All right, once I've shown you the, the, the basics, the framework, you don't need me and I don't need you. I don't, if I see people turning up on another course, okay, I might do a little kind of more advanced, whatever the hell that means, course. Um, but if people keep coming back on a walk, <laughs> I kind of joke, I haven't done my job. Yeah. Because at the ultimate is, is ideally we need to make ourselves kind of, um, we need to, we need to get ourselves out of the job we're in because people, become their own self-leaders and their own authority and they can then go into their communities or even if it's just to their with their family and friends and teach what they know and their understanding and pull community and kinship together where they are rather than having to travel somewhere to listen to me it, it, it's funny because that with the sort of punk thing being slightly still in the background listen to what you're saying uh i was thinking about marquis e. smith's um Sniffing glue fanzine. I think the first edition, he, he had a picture of um, just a drawn picture, scribbled picture of of, of uh, the top of a guitar. He says, "Okay, these are three chords. Now go and form a band." Brilliant. <laughs> That's exactly it. That is exactly it. People did that at that time. Yeah, they did. The music that came out of the, uh, the you know, the the. Uh, the latter half of the 20th century it was from that kind of attitude. People came and saw one of those bands and went and formed their own band. And, you know, that feeds back to what you started this, this, or, you know, the, at the start of this discussion, it was, you didn't know kind of, there's something missing. You don't, we, and you mentioned this, where we don't have the culture around gathering or foraging. Yeah. And it's like, but we don't need to. But well, it would be lovely, you know, and a lovely utopia. It'd be lovely if we had that culture. But we don't have the culture, so we deal with what we have rather than what we th- would would hope or wish for, because it ain't there. And the only way we do it is like Marky, you know, pick up a guitar and play. The only way we're going to rediscover it is by going out into it. Here's three plants and a kitchen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and cook a meal. Absolutely. It's that simple. Yeah. It really is that simple. And people say to me, I ask my people who sign up to my newsletter on eatweeds.co.uk. There's a plug. <laughs> I, I ask them, what's their biggest, biggest issue with foraging? What's their single biggest problem? And I get numerous, uh, the same problems fed back to me. But one of those problems is, there's too much. I don't know where to start and I don't want to poison myself. And it's like, look, you know dandelion. Even though you think you don't know wild food, you do. Yeah. You know daisy, you know dandelion. Yeah. Go start with the dandelion. Frank Cook, I remember that first meeting of the Association of Foragers where we were kind of laying down these ridiculous rules of what allowed what would what would allow people in and even i said it and i hold my hand fully up to it and i think what a dickhead now you know i said no you've got to have at least five years teaching experience to join the aof you know and i woke up i don't know two years ago and thought robin what where was your head at when you suggested that because frank so when i say frank not frank the heron but frank cook Frank Cook said, you know, at the end of his teaching gigs, and Frank Cook was the guy that got me out to teach, I resisted it absolutely because I wasn't meant to be doing didn't want to do it, wasn't meant to be doing it. But anyway, he, he convinced me that I should be doing it. And he said, look, 
providing people go away with learning one plant that they can work with really deeply, that's the start of the journey. And then that person can teach their members of their family and their friends that one plant. And then those people can go back into the community through their connections and teach that one plant. And that's how the wild food heritage gets rediscovered by working in the moment with that one plant. And it doesn't matter that it's dandelion. It's not about knowing every blooming wild plant, edible plant in Britain. It's about starting with what you know because it makes it easy for you. And it's about going, wow, let's go and explore dandelion. What if Robin gives me this practice of gather a dandelion a day and make something from it, but make something from it by engaging your senses rather than reading my recipe book or going to my site to get inspired. And, you know, do that as the last port of call. If you've got to draw a complete blank, but the culture, so, you know, I get people who email me going, can I use two teaspoons of honey instead of one? And I cry when people say that. It's such a, it's so indicative of how disempowered we are yeah. and cut off from our own body's wisdom because we all know flavours, we all know textures, we all know what we like. We might not be able to make it look like a work of art, like a Michelin star chef or some high-end chef, but it's not about doing it to post it on Instagram. It's to do it to foster and restore vital connection, that good old phrase, restoring vital connection of the human back with the rest of the ecosystem that it's already biologically embedded with. Yeah. So start with one plant. And if it's dandelion, rock on, because there are so many levels we can go with dandelion we haven't even started on. Yeah. Or, or whatever really yeah. obvious plant, you know, like elderflower or nettles or black blackberries. Blackberries. I mean, I start with that because I say to people, who's done the foraging before? No hands go up sometimes. None. Sometimes, you know. I say, yes. okay, who's ever eaten a blackberry? Pretty much every hand goes up. I yeah. go, holding out on me. You guys are experienced dyed-in-the-wall foragers. You've been yeah. all your life, you know. Same. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's a weird one how people, how people, how we, I, uh, yeah, how we limit ourselves, how we just disempower ourselves all the time. No, I'm not a forager. You've eaten a blackberry, you go, you are a blooming forager. You understand this highly elaborate procedure of there being something in the wild that nobody cultivated, you're there, it's there, and then you just make this daring leap of reaching out and plucking that berry and putting it in your mouth. It's, it's daring, it's risky. But you do it. And <laughs> there we are. You're already uh, part of the gang. The other thing it, that feeds into for me is when it comes to identification, you know, the big block that most people have is I'm, is I'm going to poison myself. Well, one, you obviously you never, put, you never put anything in your mouth that you aren't 100% certain with. But take the bramble, take the blackberry. You know, if, if I said to someone, are you going to mistake that blackberry for anything else? I haven't asked that question. I think I need to ask that question with with um, my next groups. I would I would bet a tenner that ninety nine percent of people go, oh no, I know what a blackberry looks like. Well, okay, but how do you know what a blackberry looks like? And then it's like, well, how did you know? Oh well, my mother showed me, or my grandmother showed me, or my teacher showed me, or you know, another friend when I was a kid showed me. And it's like, okay, but why do you know it so well? What is it about knowing it 
from 50 yards away or 100 yards away what it is. And it's because you've been doing it for long enough that you it's now gone into habit. habit. You habitually know without any necessary, any kind of rational or attentive thinking that it is blackberry. Well, that's what happens with all the plants when you, but you've, you've got to be gathering. You can't be flicking through a book. That doesn't work. You can't be liking a picture on Instagram. That doesn't work. The only way you're going to know it is by meeting it. You know, it's, it, I can look at you as a picture miles and make all these assumptions about you from a photo, but it's only when I truly meet you, as in face to face, do I get you? Well, I I put it like this: it, it's it's um it's kind of cheeky, but it's like you know when you when you when you recognise your uncle Bill, or when I recognise you, you know, uh, I, I am not going through saying okay. So the ratio of the width of Robin's eyebrows in relation to the length of his nose uh, and then the precise kind of curvature of um, his particular earlobes. Um, therefore, that's Robin. Uh, you know, it's, it's an instant recognition thing. And unfortunately, people do, in our position, as people who have to learn this stuff as adults, we do have to start with this analytical thing of describing in detail and, and coming up with these technical terms, which, you know, I hated learning all that stuff, but it was useful. And I do teach it to people um, to, so they know how to engage with a wildflower identification book in order to learn plant ID. But it's an it's a necessary evil, you know, in, in as you say, like we, we didn't learn blackberries like that. And kids in, in, in societies where they haven't lost all this knowledge never learn it like that. And, and in fact, you know, it's... Um, it's just interesting to see that there is a way into this knowledge that doesn't involve any kind of analytical stuff. It's just you watch what your mum's picking. and Yeah. And you also watch, I don't know, you watch her. I was reading about this yesterday, that, that, that young children learn how to deal with the world by at a certain stage. They start looking at mum. So they, they learn how to relate to the world by, by seeing the mother or other, other person's um, attitude to the world. So they, they, they're seeing that as a way. To, to relate by seeing the other person's approach to the world. So they've taken on board. And 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 it seems to me that, that you would have had, like, mum picking cow parsley and hemlock, and you'd, you'd be there watching the cow parsley, and then you'd see the mum with the hemlock. She would deliberately go, you know, and, and you're too small to understand, you know, like the hemlock's got the red dots and all of this stuff. You're too small, but, but you would get that. Like, this stuff is bad shit, you know, don't touch that. Look at mum's reaction. Yeah, so you yeah. learn it on that level. You would then, when you saw that that totality, that that um, gestalt, as they say, you know, the whole, your face is a gestalt. I'm not analysing it as I described. And you'd see that gestalt of the hemlock and you'd link it with that. Yeah, see, yeah. That's what would help you identify the hemlock, not the analytical thing. You you would see the gestalt of it and link it to that. Oh, shit. Yeah. Seeing the look on your mum's face. I mean, I, this is a brand new thought. I was just reading this book on child psychology yesterday, and and, and I thought, aha, maybe that's you know the early learning that children have. They would think something was safe, totally safe. But I mean, what it is, I'll tell you what it is. The, the experiment is called the, um, the the something cliff, the visual cliff experiment. So they they have this thing where the baby's crawling along, and then it gets to this bit 
which looks like it's a big drop. Yeah, it's actually not. Yeah, but it just looks like it. It might be glass over an actual drop. I forget how they do it. But mum's the other side, and they get to this thing, look at it, think this looks dodgy. Look up at mum, and mum's just smiling. So they go, oh, that's cool then, and they carry on going. Yeah. Alternatively, in the other condition of the experiment, they look at mum, and mum's going when they reach that point, you know, and they that none of them go over that line, you know. They're totally using mum to judge. So the theory I I kind of hit on in reading that, I thought, is this how small children learn poisonous plants? And I think it is, you know, as I've as I've just described. Yeah, I think there's that's an interesting one because I was teaching. I remember in, in when I taught in America a few years ago, my friends came up with this term and started referring to me as a sensory botanist because I, I unlike you, I don't use all the botanical terminology because I think it won it. Okay, so when I was at school, science just like left me cold and I could not get my head around it. Um, I can now, but I couldn't then. And so when I, as a communicator, so called, I wanted most number of people to get buzzed up about wild food so how can i do that and i just fall asleep when i hear botanists talk yeah they're, they're using all this highfalutin word and i remember stephen harrod booner saying you know for god's sake academics are, are really tiresome because they, they want their little ivory tower and the way they have their little ivory tower, a bit like the apothecaries that it goes right back then you know culpepper wrote his book in english Everything else was written in Latin because it, it, it enabled and kept the hierarchy and the authority in power and yeah. um, meant they could charge ridiculous money for basic things that we could go and get in the hedge. Um, so when I started teaching, I, did, I refused to use botany. And a lot of my friends who are botanists and ethnobotanists said, Robin, you're just anti-botany. And it was like, no, I'm not anti-botany in any shape or form. But, you know, think about it. We've got a petiole. Oh, great. If I say, do you know what a petiole is? Oh, so yeah, no. People who turn up, most of them, unless they've got a botanical background, don't have a clue what I'm on about. So why am I using that word to describe a leaf stalk? I yeah. mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, I don't use that term. I definitely don't, never use that term. Yeah. So I get that we do need to encourage and foster an understanding and a love of botany and all the lingo that goes with it. Because like you said, it does help us when we're going through wild flaggies. But when I was, and this feeds into, you know, how do, how do we learn the difference between a poisonous plant and a non-poisonous plant when we're children? And, and I remember being in Burma and I had access to someone that, that, um, and an organisation that basically works with the Karen tribe people, tribal people, and negotiate the kind of a mediator between the Karen who have who are armed armed resistance to the hor horrible military government and they were mediators they were really good people um, and they wanted me to go into the black zones with them because the Karen wanted me to record the the food plants or not just the food plants their 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 forest knowledge of plants and one it was way out of my league um, but. With the discussions, one of them was this thing of like, well, how do they, how did they know plants? How did humans, you know, how how is the information transmitted generationally? And 
at one level, yes, I think you're right. We're, we're obviously observant as children. We're responding to what our primary carers' responses are in any given situation and getting feedback from that. But they were very definite about senses. So I've been teaching for, for years this sensory method, which is you know a plant by what is its texture, what does it feel like when you gently pick it, what does it sound like when you roll it, what does it smell like, what's the body's response when you smell it, what happens when you nibble it. And I couldn't find any validation for that. It wasn't that I'd made it up. It was just how I, uh, you know, as someone who, when he was a kid, would would rub the pages of a book to smell it because I love smells. Mm -hmm. And that's how I learned about the world. So I just translated that into my teaching style. Um, and then this came back from the Karen. It was like, oh, oh, right, okay, so I'm not crazy. I haven't made anything up. This is actually how we do it. Yeah. So... And I remember recently, I think it was about two years ago, because I was really interested in this thing like, how do we process information? And, and in the Western construct, we process information predominantly through our eyes. You know, that's the, the kind of the, the status quo um, explanation. But I just felt there was something, we were missing something, because we're not just eyes, are we? We're not just walking eyeballs. We're walking bodies. So there's got to be some correlation within our body. And I discovered a paper where, where there's a tribe in Africa who have a vocabulary to describe the sense of smell that's 70 times, I think it said, it might be, hell, half it, call it, 35 times larger than their vocabulary to describe colour. I thought, wow, that's, that's flipping the paradigm on its head. And it's coming from tribal cultures who I'm, you know, I'm interested in studying and exploring and seeing how they work with their ecosystem, within their ecosystem. And I just say briefly there, just 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 to kind of bolster what you're what you're trying to say there. Like, if you think about it, lights, there the, the the primary colours are are very few. And I know we could get into the subtle nuances of of shades and so on, but still, that's quite a blunt instrument when you compare it. So that isn't it millions of different compounds that we can detect using our our noses? Yeah. Isn't it, by definition, a far more subtle instrument? I think so, personally, but the, I, I don't really get much data. So if anyone is actually listening to this and interested in this and has a, has a you know, that's their field of research or exp experience, um, I'd be really interested in, in having some pointers to take this exploration of this subject a little bit further because I do think it's really – I think it, it for me it feeds into – you know, if you look at animals and observe animals, if you've ever stalked deer, and I don't mean to kill them, I mean to just observe them, you know, every crack, every movement of the wind, it's on alert. So their bodies are finely tuned to their environment. And, and birds do, you know, birds, you know, it goes down. And if you're present and still enough when you're there, they start chirping again. So it's like, yeah, what what other senses are feeding back to us data, so to speak, information that that is beneficial to us to 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 keep ourselves well. I mean, I think I think the um, there's a there's a book which I'm constantly referring to on this podcast called The Spell of the Sensuous, and and what that guy makes David this, Abram, isn't it? David believe, Abram. Yeah, um, he he uh, talks about synesthesia. 
right. being actually the reality for all of us. I know we, we tend to think of that as people hearing colors and smelling sounds and all that sort of thing. But his point, uh, which, which I think is a perfectly valid um, point to make on the, on, the, on the literal meaning of the word, uh, is that our experience of most things is, 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 is synesthesia in, in, insofar as what we know of, for example, a person that we live with is a synthesis of all their sensory experiences of them, you know, how their body feels when we hug them or otherwise embrace and, and, and their smell and, and the sound of their voice. Um, you know, if, if we're more physically intimate, there'd be taste would get in there somehow, like when we kiss or whatever. But, but, you know, and, and, um, so, I mean, I've been working with that. I've, I've been tinkering around with, with a practice that Dan Siegel came up with called the Wheel of Awareness, where he takes you systematically. It's all a bit splitting it apart, but it's splitting it apart so that you can, you can know the different ways that we are experiencing the world. So he takes you through five different senses without telling you, just any sounds, focus on any sounds now. Okay, open your eyes slightly, focus on the visual yeah. taste. Now. Well, I've started doing that as a practice, and it's partly – inspired by listening to you talk about how you do your foraging walks and and i'll sit down with a lemon or a hogweed seed or a slow blossom flower and i'll do my will of awareness practice with that and i'll get it to make a sound somehow i'll touch it i'll smell it i'll taste it i'll look at it you know and 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 what i'm what i'm sort of tapping into there is is something that is already a reality to an extent but especially when I get into the sound side of it and, and, and the touch thing, these are things that I wouldn't necessarily focus in on ordinarily, even though I'm aware when I think about, for example, picking a raspberry. I don't know why, but raspberry is the thing that sticks out. I can always remember how it feels to pick a raspberry. There's something that, that's, that has struck me about that particular example. But that's true of everything we, we gather. And, and so... I, I'm 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 exploring with that this synesthetic experience of a kind of fullness, really, of what I know with regard to a slow blossom or something like that. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I was just thinking about how it all weaves together to be a a, a one a singular experience through all our senses of 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 something. Yeah, I think it's to me it's it's absolutely um, key and. Uh, I tend not to go on about this anymore, but you know, my, my backstory is I was a drug addict and in order to stay kind of, um, in order not to completely lose the plot when I was hitting rock bottom, I would take myself alone into the hedge, the wood, and I'd spend my time out in it. And the only way I could do it because my brain was just so blown up and destroyed and, and damaged. Um, it was the sensory practices. So I got introduced to sensory practices when I started training to be a priest when I was 26 years old in the Syrian Catholic Church. Now, that all aside, I never finished it and I never followed it through and I don't call myself a Christian. Um, but the practices of that my bishop gave me, which were the very things you're talking about, these kind of meditations using our, our body, using our senses. It wasn't about transcending anything. It was about coming into the, the body, returning. Um, I used those practices just to keep me from losing the plot. And then when I went to Thailand to the mindfulness community where I, where I got clean, um, 
it, you know, mindfulness, those mindfulness practices fed back into the practices I'd learned within the Christian tradition, which, which is why I refer to, I don't, you know, I'm not interested in shamanism and spooky. I'm interested in contemplative practices. And when I say contemplative, we're talking somatic practices that enable us to feel again. Because again, when people say, I want to re- reconnect to nature, well, we're biologically connected. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there is no separation. We are biologically connected. That's, I think, indisputable, right? So when people say, I want to connect to nature, well, you are biologically. So what I am hearing when people say that, and I, and I, I do say it to, to people in my groups, pretty much in every group, I'm saying, you're not here to connect to nature. You're here to learn how to feel your connection to nature. And we learn to feel our connection as in to feel embedded and part of the ecosystem through senses, through these touching and smelling. And so the practices can go really deep. And so mindfulness practices fed into my very earlier experiences of doing this work and now feeds into how I teach plants. Because to me, it is vital. I mean, I, I, I didn't get him. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to tell you a sad story. So when I got into recovery, you kind of hang out with lots of other people who are in recovery or certainly struggling to get off drugs. And there was this young, young lad, Tom, 32 years old, and he was a heroin addict. And he was, you know, he was, he was a beautiful, beautiful human. You, you know, for all the damage, you just knew he was beautiful. He was really, really soft and gentle. He wasn't one of those, you know, nasty, hard, hard men. Um, and I saw him one day and, and he was really, we call it rattling or clucking. He was really, he was detoxing and he was really anxious. He's hyper, hyper vigilant. His anxiety level was through the roof. And I, we were in the middle of town in Exeter, in the middle of a city, right? Another question that you can't reconnect to the, the ecosystem. You know, you can do it in a city. Absolutely, you can do it in a city. So convinced on that. And I see him and we sit and talk and he tells me, you know, he's really struggling. And, and, and I know the state he's in because I've been in that state. We, you know, any drug addict has been in that state when they when they come off gear and rubbish. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, can I just show you something that I found really helpful? And I just taught him this very, very basic presence practice, awareness practice about walking slightly differently to what his habit way of walking was and I saw him a week later and he came up to me and he went Robin that was extraordinary that so helped me and 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 calmed me down and and I just want to thank you so I thought okay that that's really good but he didn't make it I didn't meet him early enough to teach him the power of body-centric awareness and, and he died. He OD'd. And so there's nothing superficial about this work. It's incredibly important and incredibly deep, especially when most people who visit their doctors are there for mental health issues. That doesn't mean you're mad, right? That just means you struggle with stress, anxiety, insomnia, depression or melancholy, Um those are kinds of the things, the, 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 the illnesses, the disease of our culture. And foraging can help with that because of the awareness and presence we bring 
to the practice of gathering. It's not rushing off and stripping all the plants out and, you know, taking them back. It's doing it consciously. And I'm very careful when I say that word because there's lots of people who walk around going, I'm so bloody conscious, and they're not. You know, they fall over the bloody pavement the next minute. So I'm not saying conscious as in some kind of elitist where we're a special bunch of people. I'm just using the word conscious or awareness or attention, meaning to bring yourself present. You have this word in our culture, remember. Oh, do you remember that? Well, if you take that word in two, it says remember. So being conscious, being present is to remember ourselves, to put all those bits where I'm listening to Miles, but actually my brain's off somewhere else, is to remember and bring it present, single-pointed. That, to me, is how I meet a plant. And it is deep. It sounds really easy, and it is really easy. But the more you do it, the more your relationship with the ecosystem changes and thereby your worldview changes. And we haven't even got to what you're into, which is like, you know, what happens when we take in the wildness of the world into our body? How does that change our blood? And, you know, it's so, yeah, I mean, it's just lifelong, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the fascinating thing with that is it sets up systems of communication. Like, you, you know, we've done two podcasts now with, with Fred Provenza, who's the sort of overarching phrase for me in all his work. He's there working with grazing animals and, and looking at how, they manage to, you know, know what to eat, find what to eat, and transmit that through culture within the herd and, and so on. He sums this all up with a phrase which just leapt out at me, and it was it was the fact that I could not comprehend it that that was part of what let you know this phrase leapt out, and I thought I have no idea what that means, and yet it seems to be just a flag waving at me, going hello, this is this is what you need to be looking at. And it was uh, palates connect animals with landscapes through flavor feedback mechanisms. That's really good. Palates connect animals with landscapes through flavor feedback mechanisms. Really? And, and that's like taking it inside. Suddenly, little cells and organs and areas of your body that encounter the compounds that were in the food that you just ate are then able to sort of put up little flags going, Okay, when we're in this need state that we were in, when we did this, this is this is one of Fred's things. He says, he says your cells and organs are foraging, your blood's flowing through your body, and they're going, oh, I need a bit of that, but they only take it if they need it. You know, if they don't need it, that calcium, whatever it is, molecule is not going to get drawn through that semipermeable membrane to be a part of that cell or that organ. It's only when they need it. So, but but your body is satisfied in all these extraordinary complex ways by the blood taking the compounds that were in the food that you just ate and digested. And there's a, something that happens there where it goes, ding, that was good. That was good. And then next time that need state occurs at the sophistication of our bodies to communicate with itself means that that need state goes, therefore, dandelion, please. And if we happen to be moving through a place where there's a dandelion, we go, ooh, fancy some of that. And you yeah, think yeah. it's Robin thinking that, but actually it's your knees or whatever, you know, yeah. it, which of course is part of you. But but my point is there are these many voices, right? There are these many, many, many voices when you get it down to the level of cells. And guess what? There are many voices out there in terms of these many plants that have these many compounds in. If we don't eat them, 
we don't set up the system of communication between the two because this isn't instinct, this isn't intuition. Uh, well, it depends on what you understand by intuition. Actually, it is. It and is. it depends what you mean by instinct because actually it is. But it's not some spooky, undefinable thing. It's totally definable by yeah. the fact you ate it before and your body knows that plant. And, and then your eyes and your, your conscious thing is able to recognize that plant. So you set up that communication system. That's what Provencer was talking about when he said palettes connect, because he's saying that the palette is everywhere. There's a bit of you, all of your body is basically like taste buds going, okay, I recognize this. And, and then you've got memories and associations. What that pulls together for me, Robin, because I, I thought this earlier and I was thinking, I wonder if we'll get back to this so I can say this. <laughs> when, you said, when you said metaphysics, now I've not sat and looked at a dictionary definition of metaphysics. I've been meaning to, but, but I do know what the word meta means. It, it kind of means, in the Greek, it means over. And so somebody, somebody was talking about this uh, word metanoia in a podcast a few weeks ago, which, which is a Greek word. Yeah, uh, translated repentance apparently in the in the in the New Testament, but it means to to think to overthink. So it's a it's kind of thinking that, that is able to cover all the bases and then and then come up with a better view basically because you've been able to think over an overarching thought that takes it all in. Well, metaphysics must be the thing that is over physics or the laws of of, of the thing. So it's the overarching thing, and it's, so that doesn't mean it's in. That if we talk about metaphysics, we're talking about some spooky realm that's that's may yeah. or may not exist. You know, if we look at the overarching thing with the physical material universe, it's the connectivity that draws it all together to be the many things being a, a, a one overall thing, and that connectivity is these systems of communication that we're entering into. So it's actually by getting down into place into plants. I see it's chucking every rain now. Yes. Um, by getting down into into these these uh, these actual points of contact with the many many things that are out there and the many many things that are in here, because what what we forget is 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 we have a thought or an impression, yeah. But that thought or an impression, for example, when when it starts raining, is multi-sensory, and there's a million fragments of information. But they all come together with an impression, which is one, you know. So, you know, the various impressions I have and then I articulate it and I go, uh, Brian, for example, if I was thinking about Brian. But there's, there's many, many, many things. When we say a word, it's all many, many things coming together. So it's, it's like it's mind boggling for me because like the, the, these 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 I don't know if I'm even going to be able to get out of this together, Robin, but what I'm trying to say is that we touch the metaphysical through the actual, you know, that's and those points of contact are where that one word pops out that sums up the many aspects or that one sensory impression that, 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 that has gathered together all of the different bits of sensory information. It's so, so it ain't spooky. It's just, it's no. just normal. You know, it is normal. It is normal. Blimey. Come a long way since talking about Jonathan Livingston Seagull. <laughs> Start with Frank. Thank you, Frank. Frank. Yeah. Let's thank Frank. Yeah. And it starts with gathering a dandelion leaf if that's the one you know, or picking that blackberry. Well, I I do have another one that I wanted to, to to bring out actually. Okay, so and I might try and record this. I I wrote a song last year 
I don't have a decent recording of it yet, but I might try and record it and stick it at the end of the podcast. We'll see. But the, but the line, and again, this is the beauty of it. Like this, this is an example of what I'm talking about. You know, when we're creative, we're doing that very thing. You you get a sense of words to say, and you think, I have no idea what that means, and out it comes. You know, and so I got this line that that, that seemed to fit with this this riff I was working on on the guitar, and it was let it all unfold in the gathering. I was thinking, well, that doesn't even make sense because I'm <laughs> is you know, if I gather my handkerchief together and put it in my pocket, yeah. that's the sit of unfolding it. But I've meditated on that a lot or just tried to kind of make sense of it a lot. And it's like when, when two things come together, both of them unfold, you know, when many people come together, that which is in us comes out and comes forth in the gathering. And, and so I think that's, that is what we've been talking about. Um, and, uh, and it's very good. Yeah, I'm a bit blown out actually now because we've, we've explored some, some, some ideas and yeah, I'm kind of done. <laughs> I have to, I have to process man or everything that's going on because it's, yeah, it, because the culture is definitely kind of heading off a cliff at the moment. And for me, the, this simple art of the forager, I think, holds a deep key. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, a deep key. I think I'm going to put another link on this on this uh, thing. Um, I hope people, by the way, do go to the Forager website to get to this podcast because you will see all the links and it's it's it's, it's all good stuff. If that is after all of this, you have any time to do anything other than get on with what you should have been doing before we distracted you. Anyway. Uh, it's about a key. So they've redone Wurzel Gummidge. <laughs> and it is absolutely fantastic. They did it just just, just at Christmas. There was There's only two episodes. I don't know if they'll do more. But um, Wurzel Gummidge is in this situation with a couple of kids, and basically the seasons get locked. And then they find a key. Mm. They, but they've lost the key and funnily enough this is kind of magical but it's about a handkerchief in his pocket the, the key <laughs> <laughs> it is about a handkerchief in his pocket so um, I mean I'll just recommend that but 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 it's about a bunch of people who and I won't say how they do it but like it involves a spontaneous creative moving together of lots of people in, in this in this crazy dance in the end it works out like that but they say they don't know what to do and then all of a sudden how to use the key unfolds in this gathering and the gathering is a is a spontaneous bit sort of hippy trippy sort of dance that that unlocks the seasons and all of a sudden it's all good again so um yeah i'm gonna put the link to this wurzel gummies thing because it just blew my mind when i watched it i just i thought you know things are you could say locked or you could say fucked but you know Either way, we're going to need some kind of uh, key to unlock it, as you say. And, 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 and I do think we're, we're at least in the territory of, of finding and using that key when we talk about these things. Yeah, yeah very much. All right. All right uh, cheers, Robin. Thanks a lot, Miles. Cheers, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to this week's World Wild podcast. And as usual, you can look on the Forager website at forager.org.uk forward slash podcast for all the links that go with this week's episode. And um, I'm just going to add something to that, which is that uh, I've started putting up Instagram videos of roughly a minute's duration, just looking at different plants that are coming through at the moment. And I think it's a great opportunity to uh, share that information with anyone. If, the, if this is stuff you already know, please um, share it and, and perhaps post it on local groups that, as I alluded to in the intro, like Facebook groups or anything, WhatsApp groups and that, um, because, you know, we obviously can't get out and show people in person, but there's a way to do that. And if you, if you keep following the Instagram feed, I'm hoping the next few days you'll see some stuff where, where we're putting little signs up around the village um, to point to the plants. And, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that might start a little flurry of people doing the same in different areas it'd be, be pretty exciting that uh, people could start to get to know like like a sort of um elves and the shoemaker thing you know that uh, while people are not there somebody comes and puts a little sign and then next time people walk through they can see this little gift of information pointing them to something wonderful and edible that uh, that you can eat okay um well and also we'll have the link to to robin's website that's pretty much it so thanks again for listening to this week's worldwide podcast.
ocean is falling still under the awning of love. And if you just would come and bring us back where we belong, then the waters will run. Make the bond strong, then now what is will run. Thank you.